Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Good morning. Take your Bibles. Join me in the very last book, Book of Revelation. That's where we're going to round out our series today. Uh, again, I, I hope you've enjoyed this. I've certainly enjoyed putting it together. Pastor Chris and I have enjoyed preaching it and kind of unfolding that grand narrative for you, and we will end that uh, today and, and really uh, just a, a blaze of glory, if you will. This story began with creation told us where we came from, told us who our creator is. We are told in this story what our purpose is. We were told in this story that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are told in this story that God has glorious purpose and vision and passion for all of us in this world. Our first parents were created in his image and likeness. That's how precious all of us are to him. His very own image is stamped on each and every one of us. He placed our first parents in that garden to cultivate it, to keep it, to bring greater glory to him. But very, very quickly, this narrative starts to go off the rails as our first parents rebel openly against our creator. The result of that is they are separated from their God, and thus you and I, who carry their DNA and their spiritual corruption in our minds and bodies and souls, are also separated from God. And we, like they, now live in a world that's not inside that garden, but outside of it and outside of fellowship with God as a result of that rebellion. Creation has collapsed in on itself. The cosmos reels from the sin curse as it continues to do so. But very early in that narrative, we also saw a promise. We saw God say to the serpent, actually, our enemy who tempted our first parents to commit that very first act of rebellion. He said, I'm going to initiate warfare between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed and he will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. It's the first testimony, the first prophecy, the first promise we see in all of Scripture, very early in Scripture, of God saying, I'm not going to leave it like this. I'm not going to leave humanity in this state. They deserve it, but I'm not going to do it. I love them, and I'm going to redeem them, and I'm going to do it through the sending of a Messiah. And the vast majority, I don't know if you realize this or not, but, but over 23, I think it is, messages. Five of them have been from the New Testament. You know why? Because the rest of it is the history of God working through kings and paupers and nations and peoples and wars and circumstances of every sort and kind in order to ultimately bring that Messiah into the world. He brings that Messiah into the world. And a few weeks ago, we saw the life of that Messiah, Jesus, who comes, the second Adam, who is what the first Adam should have been, a perfect man. He looks strange to our world. Because he's perfect. Because he never sinned. And he does strange things. He brings glimpses of a different kind of world. It's the world, in fact, that we were intended to inhabit from the very beginning. He brings glimpses of the very garden that we got kicked out of. Because in that garden, in that kingdom, nobody's blind. And so he opens blind eyes to give us a glimpse of what that looks like. In that kingdom, everybody can walk. And so he takes people who are lame and he gives them the ability to walk giving us a glimpse. In that kingdom, nobody dies, and twice he raises the dead because he wants to give us a glimpse of that kingdom. And then 
He pays the ultimate price in order to bring us back into fellowship with our God and with that kingdom. He lays down his life willingly as a sacrifice for your sins and for mine. And he rose bodily from the dead, assuring us that we will live, as he said in the New Testament, as I live, you will live also. He ascended to the Father. And then for the last two weeks, Pastor Chris has been describing for you the spillover of the resurrection, which is something we call the church. It's forward momentum, it's mass movement from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost. And today, as it continues in all three of those areas, local, regional, and global, to make an impact, you and I are still a part of that story. You might even say we're in the 29th chapter of Acts, that book that's not in the Bible, but we're living it out. And so this story has told us about creation. It's told us about fall. We have been living uh, through, not just reading in the Bible, but we live in our lives in an age of redemption. Today, we're going to see how the story ends. Because creation and fall and redemption lead inevitably to restoration. The consummation of human history, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the closing of all things, the setting of everything back the way it was supposed to be, and the making of all things new. That's what we're going to talk about today. But before we get there, we got to do something else. How many of you have played this game called Grapevine? Or maybe you called it something else. It was I whisper in your ear, and then you whisper in somebody else's ear, and then they whisper. You know what I'm saying? You all played that game? When I was in church youth group, we called it Grapevine because it's, it's kind of it's, it's like what some of you all do. You just don't play a game. You just gossip. That's another sermon for another day because it's incredibly destructive. And one of the reasons it's destructive is because from here to here, the message changes, doesn't it? Everything's changed. The facts change, right? And sometimes when you're playing the game, there's some boogerhead that just changes it just on purpose because he wants to change it. And then by the time it gets to the end, it's either a garbled mess that nobody can understand or something completely different from what was started to be said, right? You ever play that game? Okay, what you need to understand is that for 2,000 years, there's been a grapevine building, particularly when it comes to, uh, to biblical prophecy. And so I want to kind of give you a sense of that, of that history, beginning with the early church. Because back at the early church, there was no systematic, comprehensive approach to try to string together Bible verse upon Bible verse upon Bible verse to give some comprehensive picture of the end and all of the players that were going to be a part of it. What we did have was near universal agreement about three things. Number one, the resurrection of the body. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says the dead in Christ will rise first. Nearly universally, the church declared from the very beginning, we believe that the dead in Christ will rise. Our bodies will be resurrected and they will be changed. Okay? So if my body's in the ground somewhere, or if it's been cremated, or whatever happens to me after I go out of this world in the next one, if that precedes the coming of Jesus, when Jesus comes, my body will be reconstituted, it will be reunited with that immaterial part of me, and I will be changed. And you'll know me, you'll be able to see me, and know who I am, but I will not only look better than a dead body, I will look better than I look right now. And everybody said, Amen. Right? Because this is it. I will. I will look better. I, will ha I won't have this gut anymore. I'll look a lot more like Dwayne Johnson. That's me. That's my glorified body. Right? Uh, that, that's the way it's going to look. But that's what Christians believe today. It's what we believe since the very beginning. The resurrection of the body. Number two, the imminent return of Jesus. You may hear a teacher or a preacher say today, well, this has got to happen, or this recent real estate's got, got to get deeded to this group of people, or that nation's got to do this. And until that happens, Jesus really can't return. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just saying nobody in the first century church ever thought of such a thing. They always live with the expectation that Jesus could come at any moment. Any moment. 
the imminent return of Jesus. Number three, the literal, personal, bodily return of Jesus. Why is that? Because Jesus isn't just God. He is man. He is a perfect man. He was crucified as a man. He rose bodily from the dead as a man. He ascended into heaven as a man, and he is coming back as a man, personally, physically, bodily. The earliest verses of Revelation, we read this in chapter verse 1, verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Everybody. And that's not just the people that are on the earth. That's the people that are under the earth. That's the people that are in heaven. That's the people that are in hell. Everybody who has ever lived in human history, there is a moment coming in your future and mine that is going to be so cataclysmic that when the sky splits and the King of Kings makes his presence known on the earth, even those not on the earth will bear witness to it. And the early church has taught that for 2,000 years. He will return. Now, aside from that, that's pretty much it. This is what we believe. It was the simple, unadulterated teaching of the early church for the first four centuries of its existence. And then comes a character by the name of Augustine. Now, before I get into too much about Augustine, let me tell you that we have a lot about Augustine for which we need to appreciate. We're going to be doing a series called Honest to God this summer. We're going to be looking at the attributes of God as he has revealed himself in scripture because movies are great and books are great. But if you really want to know God intimately, the scriptures have revealed him more intimately than any modern media ever could. And we're going to look at that this coming summer, the attributes of God. One of the things obviously that we're going to be looking at is the Trinity. God is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And nearly every analogy Every metaphor, every approach to helping people understand what the Bible says about the Trinity came from Augustine. So we have a lot for which to thank this North African bishop. But one of the things he did is he began to think of the second coming in a different way. And one of the ways he did was he he spoke of the kingdom of God and he said, I don't think that's some literal thing that's coming in the future. In fact, I think it just symbolically describes the time between Jesus' ascension and his return. And this became a position known as amillennialism. Now, That position, I'm not going to tell you it's right. I'm not going to tell you it's wrong. I don't agree with it, but I'm not going to tell you it's wrong. I'm not even, I'm certainly not going to tell you it's not Christian. I serve on a faculty at a seminary that has among its faculty men and women who hold this position, godly men and women who love Jesus with all their hearts and who in line with Augustine want to see his mission accomplished. So I'm not here to argue or tell you that something's right or something wrong. I will tell you that it is worthy of your consideration that until five centuries into the history of the church, nobody really thought of this, and that should be worthy of our our just noting. We should just note that, right? Fast forward a thousand years later to 1600, another character arrives on the field. His name is Daniel Whitby. And Daniel Whitby started to forward something called post-millennialism. He said, what's going to happen is the church is actually going to triumph throughout the world to the extent that they will usher in a 1,000-year reign of the church. It's basically dominionism on steroids. The church is going to rule the world for 1,000 years, and then Jesus is going to come back. Now, that gained incredible popularity uh, until a couple of just really small events called World War I and World War II. Right? And then after that, everybody kind of, they, they sort of cast their doubts on this particular view. Again, I'm not telling you it's wrong. R.C. Sproul, still alive and well, still preaching the gospel faithfully, is a post-millennialist. Jonathan Edwards, probably the greatest theological mind that America ever produced, was a post-millennialist. Godly men. But I think it's worthy of our consideration to note that it was 1,600 years before anybody thought anything like this. All right? And it doesn't stop there. 200 years later, in 1830, there's a British Plymouth 
Plymouth Brethren pastor by the name of John Nelson Darby who begins to teach something also very different and highly complex. Darby believed that the nation of Israel, not just the Jews as an ethnic group, but the geopolitical nation state of Israel would be at the center of everything that would happen in the future and that God was going to have to turn his attention back toward Israel. And part of the way he would do that would be to get the church off the scene and out of the way. That inaugurated something called the rapture of the church, that the church would be taken out, then there would be seven years of tribulation, and then Jesus would return. Okay, and so everything that Augustine and Whitby put on the back end of this story, Darby then comes and and, and puts some stuff on the front end of this story, and I'm sharing all of this with you just to allow you to see how this moved from something that was nearly universal among the body of Christ and very unadulterated and very simple to something highly complex. So that now, particularly in the West, when we think of biblical prophecy, we think of somebody on television or somebody in a classroom and they've got a map with a chart with a bunch of kingdoms and a bunch of people. In my lifetime, I've heard everybody from Barack Obama to Ronald Reagan to the Prime Minister of Israel identified as the Antichrist. It makes me crazy, honestly. It really does. Uh, the Left Behind series that, that, that did some of this. This is a very popular, I'm going to guess most of you probably either identify with or if, you've, if you are unfamiliar with prophecy, you've probably heard of this one more so than any of the rest. And it's because it's so popular in the West. The reason it is is because Darby had a student, a Presbyterian pastor named James Brooks, whom he taught these things to, and then Brooks passed them down to a student of his own, a man by the name of Cyrus Ingerson Schofield. And some of you have a Schofield reference Bible in your home that delineates these things. It was widely disseminated in the 1930s and 40s here in North America, and for that reason, this view is very popular. Now, popular doesn't mean it's right. It also doesn't mean it's wrong. It certainly doesn't mean it's not Christian. This is what Billy Graham believes. But again, it's worthy of note that it was 1,800 years before anybody thought of anything like this, okay? So just keep that historical timeline in mind when you're thinking about the sole purpose of biblical prophecy, and particularly as it occurs in the book of Revelation, because if if we're not careful, we're going to miss the point because we're going to approach this book like an 18th or a 19th century person as opposed to approaching this book like the first reader's would have approached it, okay? So that's, that's kind of the history behind the book. And if you want to understand, rule number one, understand that Revelation was not written to try to figure everything out, okay? I'm sorry to disappoint you. If you came here today thinking that I was going to put all the puzzle pieces together for you, you're going to leave disappointed because that's not the purpose for the book. If you want to understand the purpose of this book, you need to understand the context in which it was written, and more particularly, how it came to us. And that requires some history as well. John the Apostle, who is most likely the author of this book, he's the one that Jesus once sarcastically called a son of thunder, right? You're always running your mouth, you're always talking big. Well, he's been through the ringer by the time he writes this book. He's gotten a little quieter and a little more mature, and he doesn't run his mouth quite as much because he's been exiled as a political prisoner by a Roman emperor named Domitian. And when we speak about Domitian, we're speaking about a bad dude. We're talking about a guy who killed his own brother to extend his own power. We're talking about a guy who would have Roman senators. He would conspire to have them put to death in order to confiscate their estates for his own youth. And we're talking about a guy who commanded that the lineage of David be exterminated from the Roman Empire. And when we talk about that in the first century context, he didn't just mean Jews. He meant Christians as well. Because in Domitian's mind, Jews and Christians were one and the same. 
You have to remember, in the first century, most Christians were of Jewish ethnicity. The gospel hadn't gone out to every nation, tongue, and tribe that widely just yet. And so in Domitian's mind, they're all the same. Let's just kill them all because they're all a threat to the empire. And it's in that context that John writes this book. Domitian has Simeon, the bishop of Jerusalem, crucified, and his chosen destiny for John is to have John boiled in oil and then exile him to Patmos so that his skin heals up on a deserted island in the middle of the Greek Isles. And so that, that's where John receives this word. John writes this letter as a political prisoner who has been horribly persecuted among many other Christians during this time. And this reveals a couple of reasons why this is a difficult book for us to understand. Number one, because it's written to a persecuted people. And can we just be honest? We have no clue what that's like. We don't. The worst case scenario we probably have, even in this room right now, is somebody's kid went to a public school and had a cross on their t-shirt and had to turn it inside out. Now that's stupid, that's annoying. Please don't insult our first century brothers and sisters by calling that persecution. It's not. When they start having their eyes gouged out, then give me a call. Otherwise, it's not persecution. It's annoying. Certainly, it's some th there's some things that should initiate a discussion. But let's be careful how we use the word persecution. These were people who were relentlessly tortured. And these were people, as a result, that when they received the letter of John of the Revelation for the very first time, they're not trying to figure everything out. They're not wondering what nations equal what. They're not taught, want, trying to identify Antichrist. They're not looking to some timeline. They're not trying to do any of that. When they read Revelation, they're trying to survive. That's what they're trying to do. And John, in this letter, helps them do it. He helps them do it. Not just survive, but, but overcome overcome. So this is one reason we don't understand it. The other reason we don't understand it is because Revelation is, by virtue of its literary genre, apocalypse. Now, when I say that word apocalypse, some people get real spooky. It depends on if you're, if you're a Bible student, you go one way. If you're new to the faith and you're not so much a Bible student, you go the other way, right? If you're relatively new to the faith and I say the word apocalypse, you tend to go here. See, it's, it's the Walking Dead, it's Terminator series, it's, it's some sort of dystopian future in which the government collapses and, you know, it's a cashless society and there's all this stuff and it's like, oh man, that's just, that's frightening to me, right? It's the zombie apocalypse. We, we talk about that because our culture has co-opted the term to mean that it's always about something bad. You hear the a word apocalypse and your, your default is, is a picture of Mel Gibson you know, in Mad Max or something crazy like that. The other side of this is this, all right? If you're more of a Bible student and you hear the word apocalypse, you tend to think like this. These are charts and graphs that show what kingdom is which and what is it in Revelation that parallels to this area out here and, and how do we make all of, this, all of this fit, okay? Apocalypse is ultimately, and at least at its base, it's neither of those things. John is a political prisoner of Rome exiled. He is writing to churches, seven of them in modern day Turkey and Asia Minor, who also find themselves within the confines of the same empire that imprisoned him. And in his letter, he is saying some not so nice things about Rome, a country which unlike us does not have a privacy act. They will read your mail. And our government does too now because we've got NSA, but that's another subject for another day, right? Uh, these were people who read your mail. And when they read your mail, 
and you said something about them they didn't much like, they're going to take care of you, and they're going to take care of the people you're writing to. And so what John does is he reverts to an ancient Jewish approach to writing that is known as apocalypse. It's a symbolic form of writing so that he and those who hear him, who receive this letter, are going to be able to decode what's going on. They're going to understand exactly what it is that he's trying to say to them and how it is that he's encouraging them. But those on the outside, most notably those who are part of the Roman government, they're not going to understand this. That's what apocalypse is. I used to tell my uh, freshman students when we would cover Revelation and New Testament at the university, we, we would cover this history, and I would ask them this question. I would go, okay, so what does this mean for the initial readers of John? When they got this book, did they take it literally or symbolically? And after all that history, the students would say, well, they took it symbolically. They understood that when you see a certain color or a certain kind of animal or a certain number, that that's not literal. That's, that's a symbol for something else that he's trying to communicate because John, not me, was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these very words of God. And therefore, it is John's liter chosen literary genre, not my opinion, that should dictate what this means, right? And so they would go, well, it's symbolic. And so I, then I would ask, well, then what in the world are we doing 20 centuries later trying to take it literally? See, we, when we look at this book, we misunderstand it because we live in a very different time. We have it very easy compared to our first century brothers and sisters, and we often don't get what this term apocalypse really means. Winston Churchill, in World War II, he described the Russian uh, alignment, the, the Russian allied uh, work with, with our allies in World War II in this way. He said, Russia is a, is a riddle wrapped in a mystery, boxed inside an enigma. I, I think that's a pretty good... A pretty good description of the book of Revelation. Um, but it is a book worth exploring. And as we move through it together, I think we're going to see why. It begins with a vision of the glorified Christ. Take a look at chapter 1. Uh, in, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, all the way really through the end of the book, we begin to see John exiled and all of a sudden he looks up and he sees a picture of the Lord Jesus standing in the midst of seven golden lampstands which is symbolic for the seven churches demonstrating to John and ultimately the churches that are going to read this letter Jesus is still in your midst things are hard some of you are being boiled in oil some of you are being crucified some of you are being separated from your families you're going through horrible persecution but you need to know that Jesus is still there Fear not, Jesus says to John and ultimately to these churches, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and of Hades. All of this bad stuff that you think is coming at you, I'm in control of it. I've got this. I've got you. I've got you. I died, but I am alive and you will live too. And so to a church that wondered, are we even going to survive this? John delivers a message that tells them, I have seen him. I've seen the Lord Jesus. And he has told us not to fear because he's still in our midst. Now that's, that ought to be encouraging news even 20 centuries later. But it's sobering news as well. And I'll tell you why. It's sobering news because it's assurance that Jesus is with us in our suffering and what that means is that it should not matter to us whether we are suffering. What should matter to us is whether Jesus is with us. What matters to me is not whether my circumstances are good or bad. Those things change almost daily sometimes. What matters to me, or at least what should matter to me, is whether Jesus is there in the midst of me. And it's the call to look to Christ in the middle of our circumstances because he's the one that brought us there. He has brought the churches, these seven churches, to this moment, this time, this place. And eventually, 
He will give them hope based on his second coming. And now this glorified Christ who has revealed himself to John and revealed himself to these churches has a message for those churches. Beginning in chapter 2 and going all the way through to the end of chapter 3, we see the messages to these churches. There are seven of them. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. They're all at different places. Like if we were to take a poll, I'm sure, of churches here in the tri-state area, we would find that all of us are at different places along our spiritual journey. All of us have things that make Jesus happy. All of us have things that Jesus would look and go, you need to repent of that. All of us have things about us and within us that would probably make Jesus go, you know, if you don't stop that, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to kill you off and take your witness out of the city. Because that's the schematic that Jesus uses in his message to all of these churches. He has a message that's individually tailored to each one of these churches. But the ultimate universal message is that the church is not ultimate. See, oftentimes, particularly if churches start growing, ours is in a season of growth right now, and that's great. That's good. I appreciate that. As a pastor, I'd certainly have it, rather have it that way than it go in the other direction. Uh, but, but oftentimes we get big. We, as we get bigger, we can tend to get prideful. Like we're the savior of the community rather than the one that saved us. Right? Our brand has got to go everywhere. And listen, there's nothing wrong with that. We have a new logo. We're doing some upgrades to uh, the, the facility. We're, we're, we're taking care of some stuff we need to take care of. That's not wrong unless that becomes ultimate and then we start thinking to ourselves whether we would verbalize it or not well we got to do something because if we go away this whole place is going to hell <laughs> yeah and what we need to remember when we read a section of scripture like these letters to these churches is that God loves us God wants to use us but he does not need us and so we better listen to him particularly when it's the way in which he calls us to repent and every church has a way in which they're called to repent. Jesus calls that out of every single church here except for Smyrna and Philadelphia. There's something about them that he says, I have this against you. This is troubling me. This is a way in which I'm going to call you to repent. So at Pergamum, for example, it was false teachers. You're just allowing people to come in and teach whatever they want. You're not drawing hard lines, when, particularly when it comes to who I am and and what I came to do 20 centuries later, I'm sure that applies to churches who would allow people to come in and teach you that Jesus doesn't, you know, it's not so much about dying for your sins as it is about Jesus wanting you to be rich and fulfilled and happy. That's not the message. Don't allow false teachers who bear my name to come in and do that. And if you continue to give them audience, I'm going to take your witness out of the city. For Pergamum, it was false teachers. For Thyatira, it was the toleration of sexual sin. There are people sleeping around. There's sexual uh, predators in your midst, and you're not even saying anything about it, let alone doing anything about it. And if you don't stop it, I'm going to destroy you and take your witness out of the city. Sexual th sin at Thyatira. With Sardis, it was complacency. You guys are like a social club. You're not accomplishing anything. You just come and you sit and you soak and you go home and your faith makes no difference in your life. But for every one of these churches, there was a challenge from Jesus. He identifies himself. He commends things about them that he likes, except for one. Laodicea doesn't get a mention there. He calls them to repent of something, with the exception of Smyrna and Philadelphia. And then there's a promise. This is what I'm going to do for you if you will do it. Because you will overcome if you will make it through these things. If you will repent of these things and continue to follow me in the midst of this horrible environment in which you're having to do ministry, you will overcome. 
you will overcome. I think it's worthy of us to ask, what is it about Covenant Church that if God were going to write an eighth letter, right? So after Laodicea, there's another one, and it's coming to us. What would he say about us? What would make him smile? From what would he call us to repent? And what is necessary for us to do if he is to keep our witness in this area? Because again, he don't need us. He could take it out. And that's the message he gives to these churches. Now, after that comes this unveiling of the future. This is the prophetic core of the book of Revelation. And we get a sense of, of what's coming relative to John. John writes to these churches and he says, here's the glorified Christ. Here's the message that he has for you. Now what he's saying is, here's the glorious future that we have to look forward to. But 20 centuries later, you and I need to ask another question. Exactly whose future is he talking about? This is where we just need to be honest about some differences among followers of Jesus and what they believe. Whose future is John talking about? And there have been at least three different answers to that question that you need to know. The first is what I'll call the pre-tierist answer. It is called the pre-tierist answer, which says that John, the future John speaks of is from the time he writes until the fall of the Roman Empire. Another way of saying that is to say that preterism teaches that everything you read in Revelation except for the coming of Jesus has already been fulfilled. Okay? So they would say, whose future is it? Well, it's John's future and the church's future, but it's kind of our past. That's what we're looking back on. Now, contrasted against that is the futurist understanding, which says just the opposite. Once you get to Revelation chapter 4, everything you read there is something that hasn't happened yet. And so when you and I look at Revelation, the futurist would say, once you get beyond chapter 4, you're looking at stuff that hadn't happened, and not, even, not just from John's perspective, but from ours as well, there are things out there that have not yet transpired. Okay? Now, understand that if you're going to read Revelation in that way, you're presuming that it's future with respect to you. That means that it, we've had 20 centuries and all that stuff that John said was going to happen is still in the future. That doesn't make it wrong. But you do have to avoid what C.S. Lewis once called chronological snobbery, which is basically the belief that real human history never really began until the year you were born. You ever met somebody like that? It's like I, I define everything around the times in which I live and the year in which I was born, uh, and I never go back. And We're all products of our times, okay? And so it's just good to have that awareness if you're going to be a futurist. That doesn't make futurism wrong, uh, but it's, it's an awareness that probably needs to be there. The last uh, answer that usually comes to this question is, is something called historicism. Historicism teaches that the themes, the events that, that are happening and described there in that core of the prophetic uh, body of Revelation, describe things that are going to happen over and over in cycles over time from the time of John until the end. In other words, they would say, well, is that John's future or is it our future? And the historicist would say, well, yes, it's both. And that's what your pastor believes. You don't have to agree with me, but that's where I'm at. And, and since I am the lead pastor and it's my sermon, I will tell you why I believe that. Uh, and then we'll go from there into some practical application. There's a couple of reasons that I do believe when you look at this body, what you're seeing is kind of an overlapping of cycles that happen in time. So when I look at uh, the seals or the bowls or the trumpets or anything, I'm not looking at something that's explicitly future. I'm looking at some things that have probably happened in the past and some things that are probably happening right now. Um, there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, number one is the way these things overlap, the repetition of things that have happened multiple times in the past, okay? The relationship between the seals, the trumpets, 
and the bowls. And all this will be up on the website if you need to come back and, and take a look at this, okay? So you have the, the breaking of the seals first, right? That's where you have your four horsemen, your false leadership, warfare, famine, death and Hades. Then after that, you have martyrs under the altar, which we'll talk about in just a minute. Uh, then after that, you have the trumpets. As they start to blow, you see natural calamities, earthquakes and volcanoes and meteors falling from the sky, demonic attacks on God's people, the mark of the beast, which we're also going to get to in just a bit. Then you see the bowls. And when they're poured out, you, you start to see ecological disaster and disease. Uh, this time, they're, they're more clearly expressed as the judgment of God on all of humanity, culminating in God's victory over his enemies, which includes this battle that we call Armageddon. And so what I would submit to you is that what we have witnessed since the time of John are seals, trumpets, bowls. Seals, trumpets, bowls. Seals, trumpets, bowls. Seals, trumpets, bowls. Because we have seen, have we not, 2,000 years of warfare, famine, disease, ecological disaster, melting ice, rising oceans, more sin, murder, more warfare, more famine, right? Cycle after cycle after cycle after cycle. And I think what the prophet is giving us here is a sense of what life is going to be like until the coming of Jesus. It's a repetition of things that have happened multiple times in the past and will continue to happen until we see Christ. And in many ways, brothers and sisters, it is a way of continuing to encourage us to see that our hope is in the return of Christ and not in anything we'll find on this earth. Here's the second reason I believe this, and it's the mark of the beast. The idea of marginalization. Now, some of you, just because I got the number up there and you're spooked already, right? It's crazy. We had a staff meeting sometime. I think it might have been back last summer, maybe. And um, I always get the vitals, you know, how many did we have and what was in the offering? Did, did anybody come to Christ? I mean, those numbers kind of come out every Tuesday. And a couple of, I won't out anybody or, you know, make anybody embarrass anybody, but there were some nervous faces in the room. And I came in, I'm like, what's up? And they're like, well, it's kind of, what's going on? Well, they passed this out. We had 666 people in worship that last Sunday. And somebody was like, well, maybe Bob miscounted. We should add one or take one away. Or we should... And I'm like, y'all got to throw away your left-behind junk. Man, this is just nonsense. I mean, come on, right? But, but that's what you think, right? I mean, I don't want to be associated with that number in any way. What in the world is this? What is this? And it causes all, both great and small, small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This world system that we live in and have lived in for the last 2,000 years and the enemy who under the authority of God has been allowed to rule it throughout history, that system has conspired against the people of God by finding ways to marginalize them. We've seen that throughout history. And it's some kind of marking. We see it in the early persecutions here in Rome and with John. We see it a few hundred years later in Cappadocia where there's actually, I've been there, there's, there's these underground caves and this network of houses and shops and houses of worship and infirmaries and, and wineries. That some existed in caves where they would, they would hide from their Roman and then later their Arab persecutors and, and continue to conduct business. Why? Because they couldn't conduct business on the outside world because they were Christian. And they would not bow to the spirit of the age. They would not do it. 
We see it today in Christians who are marginalized and, and persecuted for their faith. And they're always identified by their refusal to be marked with the rest of the world. On the forehead, you better think like us. In the right hand, your authority structure better be the same as ours. Because if it's not, we're going to marginalize you. You might lose your business. You might not be appointed to political office. We saw it just this, this past week, didn't we? Yeah, if you watch C-SPAN, if, if, if you didn't see it, it's because you're not a nerd. Lucky for you, I'm a nerd. I watch C-SPAN. So, so, so here's what happened. We had a political appointee who was questioned by one of our senators about something that he had written in an online article about the exclusivity of Jesus. All right? This isn't something this guy made up. It's not something I made up. something Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That was it. That's all he was saying. And the senator said, this guy, he, he wasn't saying, uh, people that don't believe like me, they, don't have the, they shouldn't have the same rights I do. He wasn't trying to have the church take over the world. He was, in fact, he said very explicitly, all human beings are created in God's image. They have dignity. They should be able to think what they want. They should be able to worship the way they want. I will guarantee that, that right to them as, the, in, as, as I hold this political office. But the senator just couldn't get around this idea that he thought anyone who didn't follow Jesus was condemned. And he kept pressing on that until finally he just said, well, I'm going to vote no because this guy is not an example of what America stands for. What is that? That's a refusal to be marked. All right. And he wasn't ugly about it. He just said, what, what do you believe? And it's, I'll never forget the, the guy looking back at him and going, well, Senator, I'm a Christian. This is what we believe about the exclusivity of Jesus. This is what the church has confessed for 2,000 years. That'll get you marginalized. That might cause you to lose your business. That kind of thing, folks, has happened for 2,000 years. In various ways, in various expressions. And you don't need to get angry about it. The whole point of the mark of the beast and the larger context of persecution into which John is speaking teaches us that when we encounter those things as the people of God, we just need to understand it's normal. This is what the world will do. Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. Now that doesn't mean you seek to be hated. That doesn't mean you become a big jack wagon about it. Okay, nobody goes to heaven because you're mean as hell. I'm not encouraging anybody to get up and protest. This is not an anti-Bernie Sanders message. It's just an example of letting you know that this has always been part of the history of following Jesus. Sometimes it's going to cost you to follow Christ. If you refuse to be marked by the worldview and the authority of the world, that's exactly what's going to happen. And that, again, is something that I believe we've seen in layers and in cycles from the time of John all the way up to the present. All the way up to the present. And the big idea is to speak to a persecuted group of believers and remind them this is what normal looks like if you're a follower of Jesus. Sometimes we need that reminder too, don't we? We, we live in a fallen world where people are murdered, where women are raped, where children are abused, where people starve to death. We live in a world where war rages. We, we live in a world where disease eats away at our bodies. We, we live in a world where people are tortured and killed for all manner of reasons. And we live in a world where in the middle of all that, God's wrath is poured out on humanity in regular doses because that's what this fallen world deserves. And our mistake is to think when those bad things start to surround us, we need to get, a, we need to get back to normal. We need to get back to the way it was. And John 
calls out to us from the core of this body of literature, and he says, don't look for peace and comfort and prosperity and ultimate happiness in this world. You will never find it. Look for it instead in the next world. Take a look at these passages from John, from Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. In the previous verse, we read this, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then comes a warning. Remember the mark? Are you marked for God? Do you belong to him? Or are you marked by the world? Because if you are marked by the world, no matter how nice you are or may seem to be, you are in league with the devil and you as well will meet the same fate that he does. Revelation 20, 15 tells us if anyone's name was found, not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. But then right on top of that warning comes another promise. I saw a new heaven. And a new earth. This is how the story ends. A new heaven and a new earth. You remember Genesis chapter 3 verse 24? He drove out the man and at east of the Garden of Eden he placed a cherub and a flaming sword and turned every way to guard to the tree of life. You, you've been put outside the garden. But the day is coming when you're going to go back in. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches in Revelation 2, 2, 7, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. The very thing that our parents were banished from at the very beginning, you and I who put our hope and our trust and all of our treasure in Jesus will one day eat of it again. You will come back to the tree of life. That, that's your destiny. That's your destiny. So we've seen creation, we've seen fall, we're in the midst of an age of redemption, but what's coming is restoration. Everything set back the way it was originally intended, as Jesus said, I make all things new. That's the message of this prophetic section of Revelation, and after that comes blessed invitation. I'm just going to read these words because I just think they stand on their own, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. And they will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Behold, I am some coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then he says this, the Spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. There's this, there's this beckoning by the Lord Jesus himself. Come to me. I'm the only hope you have in this fallen world. I'm going to redeem everything back the way it was rightfully supposed to be. I'm your only hope. Come back to me. To which we read in the very last words of this book we call the Bible. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. And again. Amen. I'm inviting you to follow the one who will return everything back the way it's supposed to be. What, what do we learn from the end of the story? Four, four things I want to share with you. Number one, this world is not our home. 
That you ought to see more clearly than anything else in, that, in this book. This world is not our home. Uh, in the church, we have a tendency toward extremes. We, we pull ourselves out of one ditch, and then we end up kind of falling into the other one. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. And so for the longest time in the early to mid-20th century, we were all about eternity. And let's just get, don't worry about discipleship. Let's just get as many people into the kingdom and into heaven as possible before God drops a hammer and all hell breaks loose. Let's just get everybody saved, uh, which is not a bad thing. Evangelism is wonderful. But if you don't make disciples, you're not going to have a church that's strong and, and healthy and vibrant. And so we kind of neglected that. And so now it's almost like we've gone back the other direction and it's everything's about practical stuff here in life. It's like how to have a good sex life and how to get your finances in order and have a, how to have a good marriage. And listen, those things are great. Scripture teaches on those things. I can almost guarantee you that if you will put biblical principles into place, your finances will be better than if you did not. That's true. But eventually your money and your possessions will be gone. So you can't put all your hope in that. If you will put biblical principles in place with regard to your marriage, I can almost guarantee you will have a better marriage than if you don't. But eventually, even if it's a healthy marriage and it lasts forever, one of you is going to bury the other one and your marriage will not last. You've got to have something that goes beyond that. There's got to be a hope that goes beyond everything else in this world. Because our world that we live in, it's not our ultimate destination. It's not. And way too much of the church today is obsessed with, give me something practical. Let me know what I can do. I'm just going to say something, all right? It's going to make some of you angry because I, I know you read books like this, but there's only one way that you're actually living your best life now, and that's if you're going to hell. That's the only way you get it. Because Jesus doesn't mean for you to live your best life now. Your best life comes later. Your best life is beyond this one. Your best life is beyond anything you have ever known in this one. This world is not your home. Stop pining for it. Stop finding your identity in it. Stop pursuing earthly riches and fame and money and satisfaction and happiness like some prostitute and turn to Jesus. He's the only hope you have. If you belong to Jesus, this place we inhabit right now should feel like a foreign country to you. There should be a side of you that kind of gets itchy and gets the sense of, I don't belong here. I don't belong here. Because you were not made to stay outside the garden. You and I, if we belong to Jesus, we were created and we were redeemed to be in the garden. In fellowship with him. We were created and redeemed, brothers and sisters, for another world. This is not our home. Stop putting your hope in it and then wondering why it always disappoints you. Number two, this world will put some of us to death. Great news on a Sunday morning. It will. Look at Revelation chapter 6. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So these are people who basically had their heads chopped off. How long? We have brothers and sisters in the Middle East right now, who, or were in the Middle East, and now they're in heaven. They're asking the same thing. How long? Here's the answer. Until the number, go back guys, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. You get what that means? You understand that? 
in a Christian subculture that values safety and security over obedience. This is hard, and I get that. But there is a definite number of people who must give their lives in order to fulfill the Great Commission. I may be looking at some of them. Some of them may be down in Kidman right now. And in 15 years, 20 years, it might be them. Some of them might be among our youth. And in five years or less, it might be them. And we don't, we're not one of those groups that has a martyrdom complex. If you're a guest with us, we're not like a hellbop comet cult or anything like that. We're not looking for death. That's not who we are. But Jesus did tell us, the world hated you, they will hate me. And here we see with abundant clarity that sometimes... Jesus will ask his followers for their lives. See, there's something dangerous about being a follower of Jesus. I, I want this to be a little bit of a dangerous place. So just be forewarned about that. I mean, you've got your kids downstairs, and, and we're up here learning about this. But you just need to know, David Platt once well said, when you give your life to Jesus, what you basically do is you take a blank sheet of paper, you sign the bottom of it in blood, you give him the paper, you let him fill in everything else, and you just say yes to whatever it is. That's what it means to follow the king of kings. And sometimes what he writes on that paper might require you to give your life to advance the gospel. And you just need to know, we're training your children downstairs to say yes. We are. Because this is what I'm telling you, it's not good. And we wonder, why do we, we go to the Middle East, like, wow, they're undergoing all this hardship and everything, but the church is growing and God is moving in incredible ways. Look at the Asian subcontinent. Why isn't God doing that here? Why is it that the best we can put together here is to pack out a house and have a bunch of people cry, but their lives are not changed or transformed in any way, and then we say, that's a move of God. Why is that the best we can do? I'm going to suggest to you why that is, at least in part. It's because in the rest of the world, they're not afraid to die. And here, we're like, oh, just, I just don't want to hurt. Like, if I just couldn't, you know, a little money, but not a, not a lot. And, and I, don't, I, I don't want to be, well, I'm not going to do that at work. I don't, I don't want to be insulted. And, and I don't want to be, I, oh, oh, that's pain. I don't want pain. Don't give me pain. I, I don't want that. Uh, and in fact, and then finally we get to this point to where we're just like, you know, here's, we're just like, Lord, I just, you know, maybe I'll just stay right here and, and I'll just maybe die in my sleep and, and, and I'll just do this. And, and then we'll just kind of like, 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 what you laughing at? I'm, this is you. <laughs> That's us. That's the Western church. You want to know why we're not moving forward in power and might? You want to know why the Holy Ghost is ignoring us and going other places around the world? This is why. It's because we read stuff like that and we think, oh, it must apply to somebody else. Not me. Not my kids. Not my family. Unless you think I'm waxing eloquent from some ivory tower, I would remind you I have three of them that I would die for and that I would kill for. And I have a wife that I love more than myself. And in a few weeks, I got to put her on an airplane that includes a stop five hours in an area that is not very safe right now. And I have this conversation with the Lord all the time. And it's a struggle. I, I, I'm not, I, I don't want to presume 
to, to be more holy than you when I preach stuff like this. I have this, I have this conversation back and forth. Lord, that's the 38th parallel. You know what's going on over there right now. I can't protect her once she's on that plane. And it's a matter of me trusting the king of kings when he says to me, I know what is best for her, and you don't. And if you think you love her, your love for her is like hatred compared to how much I love her. Let me have her. Trust me with her. And you just, that's the only way I can look at my wife and say, go. Go. That's the kind of life. And we need to do it understanding that sometimes it's going to cost us our lives. But do you think, is Jesus worth dying for? I mean, that's, that's, that's the question you have to ask yourself. Safety, security, not those people, those who get me away from this. Well, I, I don't want to hurt. We just, we didn't used to scare so easy. Maybe it's because we forgot this third thing. Number three, our victory over this world is assured. You might die. But this is definitely going to happen. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. This is a picture of victory. Stay faithful, keep serving, keep sharing because this war that we are in does not put us on the winning side. We are on the side that is already won. Christ assured that victory for us at the cross. Number four, Jesus lives and he reigns forever. Chapter 21, verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. The story of our faith is a story of creation, fall, redemption, and ultimately of a God who restores all things. And Jesus, who is revealed in all of his glory in this book called Revelation, is the author of this story. He is the finisher of this story. He will return and end this story in ultimate victory. That's what we have to look forward to. And Jesus invites you to enter into this story. I was at a gas station back in 1999. And I took my credit card in because this was... For those of you who are younger, there actually was a day when you couldn't just do it at the pump. You actually had to go in. They had this thing, they, you know. And so I go in and I, I, to pay for my fuel. And the woman took my credit card. This is right at the summer of, eight, of 1999. And she looks at my credit card and she goes, and she kind of shivered. And I went, what? Are you okay? And she went, yeah, I just, I saw the expiration date on your credit card. It's year 2000. And then I thought, why me? Why have I got to be the one that always runs into these people? And I said, uh, does that make you nervous? And she goes, yeah, God's coming back. Okay. That was, again, everybody was freaking out about Y2K and the end of the millennium. And this. so every 2,000 years, something happens and all kinds of stuff that Scripture never speaks about. But we go nuts over it anyway. So this is what I said back to her. I said, well, I, I guess you're right. He could. I think he could come back at any moment. Um, he could come back in 2000. But yeah, it's, it's June. You might, like, die in September. Are you ready for that? And the conversation kind of ended at that point. And, and, but but here's, the, here's the point. We can talk all day long about global or historical eschatology, right? This, this sense of 
all the world players and how these events are going to unfold and who's going to cooperate with who and watch the news and try to match that up. Or we could do what John originally intended for us to do with this prophecy, which is to apply it personally. Because more important than what's happening on the global scheme is my own personal eschatology. One day I am going to die, and when I do, I am going to meet Jesus. And when that happens, only one thing will matter, and it is whether I have given him my life and trusted him with my soul. Nothing else in that moment is going to matter. Nothing. And the whole of this story, not just Revelation, but this entire story that we've been covering that we started on January the 8th, is summarized for us by Jesus himself here in John chapter 5. He said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. We laid this foundation because we want you to know the Bible for yourselves. We want you to be able to study it for yourselves. We don't want you to use your pastors as training wheels. We want you to be mighty men and women of God. But I'm going to tell you this. The Bible, though it is the infallible and authoritative word of the living God, will do you absolutely no good if it is not accompanied by a relationship with its author. Jesus said, come to me. Read the scriptures to find me. That can be your story. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you that in your word, you don't just give us a picture of what you have done, but you give us a very clear picture of how things are going to be. And again, Lord, in a context where Christian and non, all of our concern is about security or prosperity or any number of other things. Father, would you use books like this one to make us brave again? To make us willing not just to say but to live out that principle that Paul gave us in Philippians when he said to live is Christ and to die is gain. Help us not to live with a death wish but to live with a desire to please you no matter the cost even if it means our death. And Father for that we ask that you move forward through us in power and in might to transform our world in your name. Thank you for calling us together as the body of Christ here at Covenant. I pray if, there, is there, if there's one here who doesn't know you, today would be the day when they would give you everything. That they would see this world is not their home. This is not, it is not your intention for them to remain outside the garden. It is not your intention for them to remain outside of fellowship with you. May they come to you and may they give it all to you. For those of us who follow you, embolden us in our witness. Help us, Lord. Make us insanely, passionately committed to you. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here. And I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. 
And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.